so far, we've focused mostly on Israel, Judah, and their big enemy to the north, Aram. We've also seen a little activity from Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Um, it's, I know these names sound alike. Aram is the big one, big pink one to the north. Ammon is like Ammon, Jordan. It's like just across the Jordan from Israel. And so there's been a little Ammon thrown in here and there, but there's another bigger world power beginning to make some serious rumblings in this part of the world. North of the Euphrates lies the ancient kingdom of Assyria, not to be confused with Syria. This We're talking right now about Assyria with an A, and they are completely different things. Assyria is, is a huge empire at this point. Assyria has been morphing and amassing power all this time, and that um, lower uh, southern border of Assyria kind of tracks the Euphrates River, um, at you, if you imagine some of our previous maps. So, in fact, near the end of King Ahab's life, he had joined, actually joined alliance with Aram and several of the other northern kingdoms to fight against Assyrian aggression in the famous Battle of Karkar. Now, that battle is not mentioned in the Bible, but the battle is famous historically because the Assyrian king Shalmaneser III memorialized it on the Kirk Steel. And on it, he actually named King Ahab of Israel, along with the King of Aram and several other kings and nations. From now on, Israel, Aram, and the other nations in the area are going to have to reckon with a growing threat from the north. At the end of our story last week, the Lord had just miraculously delivered Samaria, the capital of Israel, from a devastating siege being waged by the kingdom of Aram there in the pink up there. And this, yeah, it's the same Aram that allied with Israel against Assyria. Whenever Israel and Aram aren't fighting bigger enemies together, they're fighting each other. After the siege on Samaria is miraculously lifted, Elisha travels to Damascus, the capital of Aram. It doesn't say why he goes there to an enemy nation. It seems a very strange thing for him to do, but it is something the Lord has had in the works for a long, long time. Remember when Elijah was hiding from Jezebel in the cave? Now, this is Elijah with the J, not Elisha. This is a, a while back, and, and the Lord asked him, what, what are you doing in the cave, Elijah? And then the, the wind and the earthquake and the fire passed by, and finally, Elijah heard the Lord come as a gentle whisper. Back then, the Lord gave Elijah three specific tasks. He said, number one, go to Damascus and anoint Hazael king over Aram. Two, anoint Jehu king over Israel, and three, anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. We marveled at that list of instructions way back then, like how in the world would Elijah end up anointing some guy named Hazael, who we never heard of, as king over Aram? Who ever heard of a prophet 
anointing a king of a foreign enemy. The only task on this list of three items that Elijah actually got completed before he died was that he anointed Elisha to succeed him. Apparently, the tasks of anointing Hazael king over Aram and anointing Jehu king over Israel were passed to Elisha. So Elisha travels to Damascus in Aram, where Ben-Hadad is king. While he is there, Ben-Hadad falls ill. When Ben-Hadad hears that Elisha is in the city, he sends his official, none other than a man named Hazael, to take a gift to Elisha and ask him to consult Yahweh to see if Ben-Hadad would survive his illness. This is doubly interesting since the Arameans worship a god named Hadad, not Yahweh. But Elijah and Elisha's doings have made quite the impression on the Arameans. They know the God of Israel is a force to be reckoned with. So Hazael takes 40 camel loads of gifts and delivers Ben-Hadad's inquiry to where Elisha is staying there in Damascus. Elisha says, tell the king, you will surely recover from your illness. Then Elisha looks dead into Hazael's eyes and says, but the Lord has revealed to me that Ben-Hadad will in fact die. Elisha stares at Hazael until Hazael drops his eyes in shame for Hazael plans to murder Ben-Hadad. Then Elisha begins to weep. Hazael asks, why are you weeping, my Lord? And Elisha says, I'm weeping because I know the harm you will do to my people, the Israelites. You will set fire to their fortified cities. You will kill their young men with the sword. You will dash their children to the ground and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael says, me, I am nothing. How can I do such things? And Elisha says, the Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram. Hazael returns to the palace. And when King Ben-Hadad asks what the prophet said, Hazael tells him, the prophet said you will surely recover from your illness. But the next day, Hazael takes a towel, soaks it in water, and holds it over the king's face until he suffocates. And thus, Hazael becomes king of Aram. So now two of the three things on Elijah's list are done. Elisha still has one more to do, and it is to anoint Jehu king over Israel. So let's go take a look at what's been happening in between Israel and Judah. After King Jehoram of Judah dies of that awful bowel disease, his only remaining son, Ahaziah, becomes king. All his other sons had been killed sometime earlier in an attack by Philistines and Arabs. Only his youngest son, Ahaziah, had escaped. And now that Jehoram is dead, Ahaziah becomes king of Judah at the age of 22. Ahaziah's mother is none other than Athaliah, King Ahav's daughter. So he's actually the grandson of both Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And just to be clear, this Ahaziah, who is now the young king of Judah, 
is not to be confused with his dead uncle with the same name. Under the circumstances, it's no surprise that young Ahaziah, urged on by his mother Athaliah, is as wicked as they come. He hires counselors from Ahav's court and follows their advice. So along about this time, his uncle Joram, who is king of Israel, decides to go to war against Aram. So Ahaziah goes along to help his uncle. The Aram they're fighting against is the one Elisha just got back from, the Aram that is now ruled by Hazael. The combined forces of Israel and Judah clash against the Arameans at a place called Ramoth-Gilead. Well, during the battle at Ramoth-Gilead, King Joram of Israel is wounded. Joram returns to his palace in Jezreel to recover, leaving his army commander, a man named Jehu, in charge of the army at Ramoth-Gilead. Joram's nephew, King Ahaziah of Judah, follows him back to Jezreel. Now remember that although King Ahav died several years ago, his wife, Jezebel, is still alive. So it's basically Joram, Jezebel, and Ahaziah all together at the palace in Jezreel. This is a terrible tactical error. All the fighting forces of Israel and Judah are now alone under the command of Jehu. The Lord speaks to Elisha, and Elisha calls up a young man from his company of prophets and says, Quick, take this flask of oil and run fast to Ramoth Gilead. Look for a commander named Jehu. Take him into a private room and anoint him king over Israel. Then run away as fast as you can. When the young man arrives at Ramoth Gilead, he sees the army officers sitting together. He pulls Jehu aside into a private room, and there he anoints him with oil and says, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anoint you king over Israel. You are to destroy the entire house of Ahab, for it is time to avenge the blood of my prophets and my servants that Jezebel shed. Every last male descended from the house of Ahab shall be cut off and dogs will devour Jezebel on the ground at Jezreel and no one will bury her. And then the young prophet yanks the door open and runs for his life. When Jehu comes back out with oil all over his head, the other officers insist on being told what happened. At first, he tries to brush him off. But they insist, and he finally tells them he's just been anointed king of Israel. Well, his officers are all about that. They blow the trumpet and shout, Jehu is king. It's do or die now. So Jehu climbs into his war chariot and gallops to Jezreel, probably with a company of officers and elite warriors. The lookout on the palace wall at Jezreel sees them coming. He can't tell who it is yet, but he can see that a war chariot is in the lead, so he runs to tell King Joram. Joram sends a messenger to ask the approaching company, do you come in peace? And Jehu says, no, fall in behind me and join us. When the messenger does not return, King Joram sends another messenger. 
this messenger also falls in behind Jehu. When the lookout sees the second messenger is also not returning, he runs to tell King Joram and says, that charioteer is driving like Jehu. He drives like a madman. So King Joram and King Ahaziah both hitch up their own chariots and gallop out to meet Jehu. They meet at the very plot of land that King Ahav had taken from Naboth long ago after Jezebel had Naboth murdered when King Ahav coveted his vineyard. King Joram says, have you come in peace, Jehu? And Jehu says, how can there be peace as long as the wickedness and idolatry of Jezebel abounds? King Joram cries, treachery, run for your life, Ahaziah. But as they turn to flee, Jehu shoots an arrow straight through King Joram's heart, killing him instantly. Jehu then turns to his own chariot officer and says, remember that day you and I were riding behind King Ahav and Elijah prophesied that Ahav and his sons would pay for their murder of Naboth? and that their blood would be spilled right here in Naboth's vineyard? It just happened, just as the Lord said. Fling Joram's body down here. King Ahaziah of Judah is, of course, well down the road by now, galloping back towards the palace at Jezreel. Jehu gives chase, and Ahaziah is wounded, but not captured. Ahaziah narrowly escapes. He knows he'll no longer be safe at Jezreel, so he veers further west and makes it safely to the fort at Megiddo. But there his wounds overcome him, and King Ahaziah dies at Megiddo. His body is taken back to Jerusalem by his servants, and that leaves only Jezebel at the palace in Jezreel de facto queen in the power gap after the death of her son Joram, king of Israel, and her grandson Ahaziah, king of Judah. Jehu, who has been anointed king of Israel by the prophet from Elisha, has the army behind him and is bearing down on her at Jezreel. News of Jehu's coup reaches Jezebel before he arrives. She paints her eyes and arranges her hair, and then goes to the window to watch for Jehu. As Jehu enters the city gate, she calls, Have you come in peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? Well, she calls him Zimri because you might remember that was the name of an unfortunate chariot commander who had years earlier tried to become king of Israel by assassinating the royal family. If you look back on your table of kings, you'll see that Zimri reigned only seven days because the army turned against him. So Jezebel is throwing serious shade at Jehu here. Jehu looks up at the window and calls to Jezebel's servants. Who is with me? Throw her down. And immediately Jezebel's bodyguard of eunuchs push her out the window. She falls to her death her blood splattering the wall and her body trampled by the horses of the soldiers following Jehu into the city. And so Jehu enters the palace at Jezreel. He orders Jezebel's body be collected and given a proper burial. But his servants find nothing left of her except her hands and feet 
and skull. And thus the word of the Lord to Elijah is fulfilled. Dogs do indeed devour Jezebel's flesh, such that her body is no more than trash on the ground. So no one will ever be able to point out her tomb and say, there lies Jezebel. Now that Joram, Ahaziah, and Jezebel have all been dealt with, Jehu needs to determine who else might be a threat to his throne. At this point, there are 70 sons of the house of Ahab. Some are grown men, some are not, and they're all holed up in a fortified city. So Jehu sends letters, not to the 70 princes, but to their senior officers, counselors, and caretakers, saying, go ahead, choose the best man of the 70 and make him your king. Put him on a throne and let him face me in battle. All the elders and officers and caretakers tremble in fear and say, well, if neither Joram nor Ahaziah could stand against Jehu, how can we? So they send letters back to Jehu, pledging 100% allegiance to him. And Jehu responds, if you are speaking the truth, then bring me the heads of the 70 princes tomorrow. And so they do. Jehu orders the heads heaped up in piles at the gate of Jezreel. Then Jehu stands before the people and says, I alone have done this. You, the people of Israel, are innocent. But know that the Lord himself spoke this retribution on the house of Ahab long ago, and not a word the Lord has spoken has fallen to the ground. Then Jehu sets out from Jezreel and heads for Samaria, the capital city of Israel. On the way, he meets a group of relatives of King Ahaziah of Judah. We don't know if they were just unaware that Ahaziah had died at Megiddo or not, but in any case, it appears they were intending to oppose Jehu. So Jehu overpowers them, kills them, continues his march south. The next person Jehu meets on his way to Samaria is a man named Jehonadab. He's a Rechabite. Rechabites are sort of extremist zealots, but they have a long history of fighting fiercely against the idolatry of Baal, the idol there in the region. So Jehu welcomes Jehonadab as his right-hand man. He gives him a hand up into his chariot, and together they ride into Samaria. As you know, we've gotten to a part of the Hebrew Bible where we have some corroborating evidence in the historical archaeological record. King Jehu of Israel shows up in this Assyrian record I'm showing you called the Black Obelisk, having just killed Jezebel of Phoenicia and Ahaziah of Judah those historical alliances are broken. So Jehu had to look to Assyria for protection. You see how that worked? And this black obelisk documents, um, it's dated 825 BCE. It shows King Jehu kissing the ground in front of Shalmaneser III and presenting, quote, much silver. 
He's called son of Omri, which is a title used by the Assyrians back then to refer to any king of Israel. They don't care that he's not like literally a descendant of Omri. All that matters to them is that Jehu sits on the throne of Omri, who is one of the distant past kings of Israel. So they, they call it the, the throne of Omri. So the control of Israel, though, is very important to the Assyrians. As you can see on this map, Israel and Judah are all that stand between Assyria and the riches of Egypt. Now that he's eliminated anyone who might be a personal threat to the throne, the next thing Jehu needs to do is eliminate the prophets of Baal who had formed Jezebel's power base, right? You can imagine the damage they would do undermining Jehu's claim to the throne. But he's got to find them first. It's not like they're all in one place. Remember that the temple is in Jerusalem, which is down in Judah, and is still where Yahweh is worshipped. But way back when the kingdom originally split between Israel in the north and Judah in the south, a golden calf was set up in the far north of Israel, and a second golden calf was set up in the far south of Israel, very near the border with Judah. But in all the places in between, wherever there are high hills or spreading trees, the Israelites also worship all their pagan gods, chief among them, Baal. There's clearly a large contingent of prophets in Jezreel because that's where Jezebel hold, held court. There's at least 400 of them there and apparently a large temple to Baal there as well. But there were others scattered all across Israel. Baal worship is one of the major national religions of Israel. They didn't just worship Yahweh. They worshiped Baal and Astarte and Ashtoreth and other gods and goddesses of the region. So Jehu comes up with a plan. He gathers all the people together and says, Ahav served Baal a little bit, but Jehu will serve Baal even more. Summon together all the prophets of Baal, all his ministers and all his priests, for I am going to hold the biggest sacrifice and festival for Baal that the world has ever seen. Be sure no worshiper of Baal misses this big event. In fact, I proclaim a death sentence on anyone who fails to show up. Word is sent throughout Israel. And on the appointed day, all the ministers of Baal come. They crowd into the temple of Baal until it's standing room only. Jehu calls for fancy robes to be brought out for all the ministers of Baal. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, the Rechabite, tell the ministers to make sure that only true ministers of Baal are present for this great honor. They must make sure no priest or prophet of Yahweh has snuck in. While the ministers of Baal are busy with all this, Jehu posts 80 warriors outside the building and tells them to kill anyone who tries to escape. Then Jehu enters and with enters back into the building and with the ministers of Baal begins to make a great sacrifice to Baal. As he finishes the sacrifice, Jehu turns and cries out to his guards and officers, 
kill them, kill them all. Let none of the ministers of Baal escape. And so all the ministers of Baal perish on that day. The sacred stone of Baal is removed from the temple of Baal and burned. And the temple itself is torn down. And the story says the people of Israel use it as a latrine to this very day. And thus is fulfilled the words of the Lord to Elijah in that cave years ago when he said, go to Damascus and anoint Hazael king over Aram, anoint Jehu king over Israel, and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape Jehu. But I will have 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed down and kissed Baal. There is one problem, though. Although Jehu has destroyed Baal worship, he has not pulled down the golden calves in northern and southern Israel. And so Israel continues to worship golden calves rather than going down to the temple in Jerusalem as Yahweh had commanded. Nevertheless, the Lord is pleased with all that Jehu has done and promises Jehu will have a son on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But even so, Israel's power begins to shrink. Hazael in Aram becomes more and more powerful and begins to overtake Israel's lands east of the Jordan River. And we still haven't looked at what's happening in Judah since King Ahaziah was killed. But that's a story for another day. Today, in our breakouts, we'll look back at the Lord's three instructions to Elijah and give some thought as to how the timing of all that worked out in reality. One question, Gail, we were discussing. The golden calves uh, set up for worship, uh, were those... Were those really bad, um, depending on, were they bad or good, depending on uh, who they rep- represented? Or you know, they, that's, a, that's a great yeah. question, because they they were set up for political purposes. If you remember back um, when Solomon died, and his son Rehoboam was just a, a jerk, really, and um caused the the kingdom to split between Judah in the south that Rehoboam um, uh, reigned and then Jeroboam the first reigned in uh, Israel. He was the first king of Israel and he was the one that set up those two golden calves because he didn't want the people or any or the priests or anything going down to Jerusalem in Judah to worship. He did not want them to, it was the optics of the thing. He didn't want the center of power still being in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was in Judah. And he wanted to establish his power in Samaria with his capital. It ended up being in Samaria after a while. And um, so he set up, and Israel is, you know, tall north, north to south. So he set up one in the north, easy for people to get to one in the south, just over the border from Jerusalem and the temple. So pretty much you had to pass by it to get to the temple. So it was a terrible thing. It was a bad thing. Golden calves, not good. The Lord wanted the people to worship 
at the temple in Jerusalem. But if you notice, as we read through these kings, starting right about here, they will have in Israel a series of, quote, good kings who do as the, you know, the, the story says, who do as the Lord um, desired, who as the Lord instructed, but they don't get rid of the two golden calves. And there's always this little uh, uncomfortable twinge you feel coming through the author's writing where he says, yeah, the king did what the Lord said, but not everything. But still, the Lord was really pleased with him, (laughs) you know. So it's as if, if you read these, you will see that pattern again and again and again in the next several kings where the Lord doesn't like wipe out kings because they left the golden calves. The Lord is not, will do things about kings that institute the Baal worship and the Ashtoreth and all these other Canaanite gods and goddesses. So it's a yes, no answer. He tolerates it. He tolerates it. But God has always tolerated us, right? God has always been willing to take us however we're willing to come. Um, It's those golden calves were not good. And it makes me think about the cathedrals we build. And the questions about, is that how the Lord wants us to spend our money? Is that where the Lord wants to be worshipped? And and it makes me think about the hierarchies we build around religion and makes me wonder, is, is the Lord simply allowing us to come because that's the only way we will come to him, to him, her, she, them, you know? Is because it's the only way we will come. I, I don't think that these are optimal ways to worship God. Because, and you, I think that because that's not how Jesus did it. Yeah, and in, in my studies, par, pardon me, aside, my sort of studies of, yes, near-death experiences, especially one uh, by Howard Storm, he wanted to build, uh, because he was an artist, architect, whatever, uh, something big uh, to to the Lord. And he said, no, don't do that. That's for men. That's not for me. Yeah. And I think that that's true. I think anywhere you see ostentation, that's for men and not for the Lord. Because all through this history that we've been that I've been telling you the story of as we go along, every time the Lord asked for an altar to be built, did the Lord ask for it to be built out of gold and carved stones? And no, the Lord always specified undressed stones. The temple was the only exception. The temple was the only exception. And the Lord said, all right, Holy of Holies. If you build that temple, I will dwell there. But even then, you could feel the Lord's reluctance. Because if you remember, when David was talking to the Lord about doing that, the Lord was saying, 
I've been perfectly happy in my tent. Have I ever said I wanted something besides my tent? You know, the tabernacle? <laughs> there was that whole conversation, right? The Lord is letting us worship him how we are insisting on it, but it's whenever we insist on ostentation, be it physical or hierarchical, it never ends well because that is not the Lord's heart. I wondered if there was any connection to the Hindu worshiping of cows, sacred cows. I I doubt it um, because the uh, but it, there could be that you have you know trade routes coming east to west, passing from and down into Egypt. Every current in the entire known world is flowing through Israel and Judah. So they're going to have every possibility open to them, every influence. That's why it was so hard. And that's why Yahweh tried so hard to be different than all the other gods. And we're going to see that pop up again in the New Testament actually. So I don't know. I'm not that kind of historian to know, you know, all the world influences. So I think that's a great question. Julia and Marlene both done. You have exhausted my knowledge on that. <laughs> I didn't think that was possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I promised you at the beginning that I would tell you I don't know if I don't know. And I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this this whole you know the, the study questions were about the time gap between when the Lord told Elijah to anoint these two kings over Aram in Damascus. I mean, over um, Hazael in Damascus, who who would be king over Aram, which isn't even part of Israel and Judah. And the anointing of Jehu over Israel. And there, I don't know if y'all saw the little note I sent you while you were in your study group, but there was about a 12-year gap between the end of Ahav's reign, which was when this whole thing with Elijah happened, and when these things actually came to pass. And Elijah died in the meantime. You know, and Elisha's getting old. I mean, it's 12 years. So why the gap? Um, what, what did y'all talk about? Oh, we were kind of, I, I was kind of speculating to the group um, that it had to do with um, strategic events that needed to be in place and people needed to be in certain locations in order for the coup to be successful. Um, like in the case of Hazael, Elijah would have had to go through enemy territory because Jezebel was still hunting for him um, in order to get up to Aram. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then in the case of Jehu, um, that whole situation where, where you know, the three rulers were all in one place, like you said, you know, strategically not a good move. 
and Jay, he was anointed and apparently his officers were all with him. So he had the force to be able to act on the anointing. It, it, it things had to be in place. Yeah, exactly. And I'm wondering about that because it, it, I mean, clearly it all worked like it was supposed to work. But how did Elijah and Elisha know that they needed to wait for that? I mean, well, every they, they other were, time. Yeah. I kind of call them, they're kind of like a tag team. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't necessarily one, two, three uh, in the timeline, as, but uh, Elijah, you know, Elisha did have to succeed Elijah. Um, the other events may not have occurred uh, in a, in a p- particular order, just because of uh, you know God God's prophetic timing is not necessarily our what we experience here on Earth. But one thing that did have to happen is uh, Elisha needed to su- succeed Elijah. That's true. But uh, what I'm getting trying to get here at here is really its applicability to us or to someone who says they've heard a word from the Lord that is going to impact us, right? How do you know that the time is not now? Every other time that we've seen in the scripture, when, you know, Samuel was told to go anoint Saul or anoint David, he picked up and did it. When is it okay to hesitate and wait? And when is it okay to take advantage of how events are happening, you know? I'm not sure, but I know recently, it was last Friday, I saw my dental hygienist. And we were talking and she revealed to me that she's not religious or of faith. And she's in the LBGQ community. And she, we were discussing current events and how things are going so poorly in Texas. And as we were talking, I thought, well, I should tell her about Gail's Bible study. And I went, no, 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 it's not the right time. And then it got heavier and heavier on my heart till I did share with her. And she said, you've told me about that before. And I said, oh, okay. And she goes, I probably won't because, you know, I'm just not a Bible person. And I said, well, we're always there if you need us. And I spelled your name and told her. And to me, that was, I didn't really want to talk about it with her. We were talking other things, but I couldn't not talk about it with her. Does that make sense? I think that does make a lot of sense. Um, That's certainly um, something that, that's one way I know whether the time is now or the time is not now, is that added weight of not being not actually being able not to do it or not to say it kind of thing you know so i wonder everyone's sorry hang on go for it erica um i 
I think for me, I once had a professor once tell me, because I think growing up in some of the religious culture, you're in some places, you almost have this unspoken fear of wanting to make the wrong decision, of like not wanting to make the wrong decision. So you're constantly navigating, do I wait? Do I do it? Do I not? Is this what God wants? Is it not what he wants? But this professor once said to me, what if there is not a wrong decision? What if God just wants you to make a decision so he can say, there goes my girl? And it, of course, brought tears to me. And it, it, from that moment, I think I began to view decision making uh, very different because in, in the midst of any decision we make, whether waiting or not, I do believe that God is there and he orchestrates regardless of whether we wait or act on it. He orchestrates it for the greater good. Obviously, um, just a, a different perspective and a different greater good than what your own decision is. So there's, I think, now a freedom that comes with making decisions since that statement. So I, I'm more, I do agree if I have that feeling, I do go with what the gut says, the feeling, okay, and I attribute to that. That has to be the Lord putting that on me. And if I so read it wrong or made the wrong decision, I need to trust that he's also going to help me out. So that has been freeing for sure. That's beautiful. That's great. Wow. And also in making those decisions, you're weighing your pros and cons and making the most educated decision you can. That, and that brings something up. Um, and that is that I'm not sure that we, that everyone um, sees this the same way. I'm think, speaking about Christians broadly, um, that if we um, hear a word from the Lord that we believe um does I think what Julia is saying that does and Erica also are saying is that doesn't mean we turn our minds off right that doesn't and so it's very much uh, my little church just did a fabulous series and part of it what um one of the one of the Sundays was about dance and there's a TED talk, if you get a chance to go out and um, look for it, on something called Liquid Lead. And it is where these dance instructors, who are both men, um, came up with a way to pass the lead back and forth as they were dancing very smoothly. They just adjusted one particular move in a particular way so that it was not always the man leading the woman or the bigger person leading the smaller person, or, you know, not this, their, their TED talk is amazing. But, but, but the point was that our relationship with the Lord is like liquid lead. It's, it goes, it flows, it goes back and forth. It's not just top down God speaks. We do. <laughs> you know, it's not like that. It's side by side. It's a conversation. It's God gifts us 
We use our gifts. Things happen. We bring them to the Lord. The Lord speaks. It's, it's a liquid lead. It's back and forth. And so when the Lord is telling us, well, you need to go do this, that, or the other thing, it doesn't mean turn your mind off and march in front of the tank or whatever, you know, it, there is a time when the Lord will burden your heart and that will be it. And you will, ha- you will know that you have no choice, but to march in front of the tank. Right. But many times it will be something like Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to tell people he was, he was a saint um, during World War II, um, during Hitler, and he was part of the resistance, and he ended up getting killed because he was part of a plot um, to assassinate Hitler, which I'm not, like, making a moral judgment here, but he he was having, you know, coffee or something at a little outside cafe with a friend, and some soldier comes by and does Heil Hitler, and, and Bonhoeffer goes, you know, Heil Hitler, you know, and his friend said, well, you don't believe that. Why didn't, why didn't you do that? You know, and, and Bonhoeffer's like, because I need to live for another day. That's, that was not the point. That's not where I'm called to die. That's not the sword I need to die on, you know? So it's, it's, it, and so when, when Elijah is told to go to an enemy country and anoint a king, he needs to be very sure <laughs> when that's supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Same with anointing king of Israel. This is these are swords that you die on, as you all mm-hmm. have seen, right? But I just mm-hmm. wanted, yeah, go. I heard somebody. Well, I was I was just um, looking then at you know what you're saying in this question three about um, implications for how we understand prophecy and words from the Lord, which is what you're talking about. Um, and I was thinking, you know, you also mentioned in the lesson today that that God had prophesied years and years and years earlier about Jezebel and um, and about the her 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 offspring being killed. You know that that her her line would be ended on the land of the man that she had murdered. Yeah, Ahav, yes, and, Ahav, her and her husband, it was Ahav, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, um, and you know, that prophecy took place years before the event, and no one, w- no one really planned that ahead of time necessarily. It just, you know, when it happened, there was this realization of, oh, yeah, that was that prophecy, and it just happened. And that's a tr- really important point. Because we live in the end times, obviously, you know, it, and, and we are in danger, especially I'm about to enter next week. We start with all the prophets start coming in, you know, and um, so we'll be hearing about these end time prophecies and we'll be sorting all this stuff out. And we live in a time where we could latch on to something that's in that prophecy and say, oh, that's what's happening now in Israel, or that's what's happening now in Lebanon, or in Syria, or in wherever, um, or in the world. Um, And the Lord's prophecies 
aren't really like that. They're like what you're talking about, Marlene. It, it's like when it happens, it will be really obvious that was it, <laughs> you know, whereas there may be all kind of other things that could fit that might fit, but the whole big picture doesn't fit. You know what I mean? So you have to be, you have to hold these prophecies loosely and understand that they are there to be interpreted to us by the Holy Spirit when the time comes. These are things that are in our, in our reference library. <laughs> you know, it's not something we're going to carry around with us at the lunch table. Any other comments or observations on all this? Yeah, I think it's sad when it comes to prophecy, especially now with the pandemic and the political climate, the LGBTQ issues. I think that there are some people that are definitely latching onto those prophecies and almost like in in a unkind way, just kind of trying to beat you down with them. It, it's almost like you you either listen and believe and do what you need to or you're going to hell essentially because they're they're it's almost like this this fear now but it's not it's masked because it, they don't view it as fear they view it as obedience of like mm -hmm. i am doing what god is calling me to do because it is the end times and i have to tell you and force you and beat you with it because it's my duty and you're like no that's so wrong so yes, exactly. I, I find that to be sad that that's it, what's happening it, yeah, I mean, you know, you know, just one quick example. Uh, of course, there are some parallels between the beginning of the church age and the tribulation as far as some things that happened. Uh, you could parallelize, um, you know, um, in prophecy. And um, I, I, there was a multi-part series on Amazon. I was, I watched it one time, trying to, uh, trying to clarify. The end times and and so it got it all you know i've been as gail knows i've studied this stuff for a while it got it all mixed up i'm like i came out of that more confused if i didn't know what i believed i would have come out of that just like i don't know what my head i would have been filled with this crazy you know going back and forth between uh you know again uh the times uh, of, of the beginning of the church age and then the end times. You know what I mean, Gail? I do. I do because, and that's what I'm trying to avoid. I don't, none of this prophecy should like raise your stress level. <laughs> okay. It, it, it simply means that these prophecies for one thing were directed to people who, as you have seen, have been intentionally and willfully worshiping idols you know worshiping something they knew was not yahweh okay and even when yahweh would take forms that don't look like what he wanted but you know but they were intentionally doing that and many of the prophecies are directed at the nations and the kings and the rulers and the priests right mm -hmm. the leadership i want to make sure we pick up Don, donna's mic is not working and so she says prophecy. I've been in a lot of different organized <clears throat> religions, and I am so skeptical of anyone saying it's a prophecy. Although my life 
uh, all through my life, people around me and churches spent a lot of effort showing how right now fits the whole setup and to be ready and, you know, and yes, as Erica said, it's used as a tool, you know, to bash people like, and I told you so more finger pointing and listing all the things they don't like as as the lit of why God list of why God is having to now come and cleanse the world by fire and destruction. You know, when Jesus, when Jesus own message was not fire and destruction. Yeah. So yeah, my, my mom had a very, very apocalyptic worldview. And from the time I was a little girl, she would point to current events and look for parallels in prophecy and say, see, this is it. This is it. The end times, you know, over and over. I mean, I grew up with that. And then when she got dementia and as her dementia progressed, it got worse. That was the thing that she really hung on to in her dementia was we were living, you know, the Lord was going to come now and we were all going to be caught up together. We were, none of us were going to die. We were all going to be taken up, you know, before the end of our lives and everything's i mean she got to the point where she said you know you just look at what's in the news it's all in there it's all in the bible it's you know um and i thought what i saw with her was that she she missed a lot of living because she was so focused on the end like she had a case of rapturitis she yes yes that's perfect yes and i think that there were reasons for that you know losses earlier in, in her life as a child she lost her dad and and other things and i think to her that was comforting but to me yeah. as a child it was terrifying look yeah. let me tell you you can go online you can find any number of sites just search for end times right and look at look stuff up and you can see they talk about all this stuff. It's just a big jumble of stuff. Uh, sometimes even to, uh, pardon me, push a conservative agenda or whatever. And it, a lot of stuff has nothing, there's nothing to do with prophecy. Uh, it's just a bunch of bad, bad stuff going on. Yeah, and, and there's always been bad stuff going on. I mean, Paul, Paul thought he was going to see the Lord return. And, you know, people living under Rome and... You know, all these different times throughout history, everybody thought they were living in the, the end times because events that were happening with them seemed to align with what was in the prophecies. And, um, yeah. and you know, when I was little, every, all, everything bad happening in the world was due to the communists. And, <laughs> and, you know, and now it's the gays. And, you know, who knows who it's going to be tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and Donna, said there were, Donna says there were seminars showing the history of the world and how it, you know, held up what Revelation said and ended up being talked about. And that that was what you had. That was why you had to hurry up and scare the crap out of your friends before it was too late. You know, yeah. so all of this. Don't let all the prophecy part of this unsettle you because as you've seen from the very beginning of these lessons from the very beginning of scripture all the way through till now what god wants from us and with us is super simple 
It is not elaborate. God simply wants to be with us, to have that conversation every day in the intimate parts of your life. And God has gifted you to stand in the world in whatever way is natural to you that you can't help from doing, you know, because you are you. You can't help the Juliness of you, you know, or or the Marleneness of you. You will be who you are. God made you that way. And so God just wants you to go out and be that. And and it is not, there is no message of go out and beat people and scare them to death and God hates them. And if they don't repent, they're going to burn in flames. And if they don't believe the Bible the way they do, you do, you know, not, was that in there anywhere? Not so far. So, <laughs> I'm hoping that, that you take that even keel of solid faith, of solid trust in who God is with you as we go through what is going to be some turbulent times for Israel and Judah. Mm -hmm. I think we'll end there. It's been great to see you, and I'll see you next week. Bye, Bye everybody. Bye. <laughs>